welcome to another edition of Sunday Dive. I'm Katie Patrizio, and today we're talking about the readings for the 18th Sunday in Ordinary Time, August 2nd, 2020. Today we explore the only miracle recorded in all four Gospels, the feeding of the 5,000. In this great work, we see Jesus fulfilling several Old Testament roles, prophecies, and expectations. Feeding the crowds, Jesus shows himself to be a new Moses, a new Elijah, a new Elisha, and by including his disciples in this miracle, he shows himself to be a new Solomon who establishes new stewards over his kingdom, tasked with feeding his household. We are back again. Uh, I feel like I need uh, I need a new like intro. I mean, I know I have the intro at the beginning, but I always just never know what to say when I come back on. And so I just say, welcome back. But uh, there may be some of you who this is your first episode. So just a straight welcome to you. Uh, but thanks so much for tuning in. Today, we're talking about the readings for the 18th Sunday in Ordinary Time. Um, And our reading is from, our gospel reading is from Matthew, as you might expect, Uh, picking up at Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 through 21. Uh, Let's begin our time together just by reading this gospel aloud, Matthew 14, 13 through 21. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them and cured their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and the hour is now late. Send the crowds away so that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Jesus said to them, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They replied, we have nothing here but five loaves and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And all ate and were filled, and they took up what was left over of the broken pieces, 12 baskets full. And those who ate were about 5,000 men, besides women and children. That was Matthew 14, verses 13 through 21, reading the New Revised Standard Translation. Um, We touched on the feeding of the 5,000 a little bit back in episode 38, because in episode 38, we were reading from John's gospel, and we got the reading of the Bread of Life discourse. And to really give the Bread of Life discourse uh, the full attention and background that it really requires, we backed up a bit. And we talked about John's version of the feeding of the 5,000, which if you're uh, kind of an astute student of the scriptures, uh, a little bell may have gone off in your head when I just said that because it's fairly rare to have a miracle story in the synoptics that also lands in the gospel of John, right? The synoptics being Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But... As I noted in episode 38, the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle 
It's the only miracle of Jesus recorded in all four gospels. All right, so right off the bat, that indicates that this miracle is really important for Jesus's ministry, really important for understanding what he was doing in his ministry, and even really important, and we're going to see this more fully as we continue on in our discussion, even more important to understand what Jesus continues to do in the church, right? So I encourage you, if you really want to dive even deeper into our gospel, uh, you can head back to episode 38, where we spent most of the time exploring um, the bread of life discourse as linked to the feeding of the 5,000 in John's gospel as linked to the manna in the Old Testament. And so we showed how the feeding of the 5,000 is a sort of like new manna. And yet at the same time, you can't divorce uh, John's telling of the feeding of the 5,000 from his bread of life discourse preached at the synagogue in Capernaum because at the synagogue in Capernaum, Jesus explains that indeed the feeding of the 5,000 is important because as we explore in episode 38, um, there were many prophecies and much expectation when, that when the Messiah came, he would um, reestablish the manna. And so the people are like, whoa, the man is here. The Messiah is here, right? And they come to him wanting more food. They come to him wanting more manna because he's, in their mind, he's reestablishing the manna. And so the, the, the bread of life discourse that Jesus preaches at the synagogue in Capernaum is important because Jesus explains to him that food that I gave you when I fed all 5,000 of you, that was not the manna that I have come to establish. Indeed, it was a sign. Indeed, it was a kind of new manna, but it's not the new manna. So he doesn't say you got it wrong. Your messianic expectations are wrong. The Messiah is not going to come and and reestablish the manna. Jesus doesn't say that. He just explains to him the, the he explains to the crowds the manna is going to be different, and and essentially the manna is going to be the Eucharist, right? So, um, with that in mind, I'm not going to spend our episode today um, doing too much comparison with of uh, the feeding of the five thousand with the Old Testament manna, but that is one thing that the feeding of the 5,000 fulfills. It shows Jesus to be a new and greater Moses by giving the people a new and greater manna, right? So Matthew loves the Old Testament. Matthew always tries to make links for us either implicitly or explicitly between Jesus's works in the Old Testament. And so indeed we can read between the lines in Matthew and see the parallels between the feeding of the 5,000 that Jesus accomplishes and Moses's feeding the people with manna. But there's a couple other things that the feeding of the 5,000 remind us from in the Old Testament. So for example, at 1 Kings chapter 17, uh, verse eight and following, we get the story of Elijah who uh, provides food for the widow of Zarephath. Okay, so this is during a time of famine. He comes upon this widow. This widow wants to show him hospitality, but she doesn't have enough food uh, to get them past like one more meal. 
And so what Elijah does for her is um, make it so that her, her flour and her oil do not run out. And so in many ways, when uh, Jesus takes the limited five loaves and two fish, feeds this great crowd and they never run out, right? There's leftovers. Jesus is showing himself to be a new Elijah and even a greater Elijah, right? Because Elijah fed two people. Jesus feeds 5,000 people. Scholars also look at, and and, um, arguably first century Jews experiencing the feeding of the 5,000 would have been reminded of this as well. But scholars also see a parallel between the feeding of the 5,000 and the story of Elisha at 2 Kings chapter 4. So there's Elijah, E-L-I-J-A-H, and there's Elisha, E-L-I-S-H-A. And Elisha was the successor to Elijah, right? Elisha at 2 Kings 4, verse 42 and following, multiplies loaves, and feeds a hundred men and there are leftovers. All right. So fulfills the fiend of the 5,000 fulfills and reminds us of Moses and the manna, Elijah and the widow of Zarephath, as well as Elisha and the multiplication of bread to feed a great number. Let's actually turn to second Kings four, to read the story of Elisha and the multiplication of loaves, because as you're reading through it, we're going to see some clear parallels with our gospel here at Matthew 14. So I'm at 2 Kings 4, verse 42 and following. A man came bringing the man of God, bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, how am I to set before, how am I to set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. 2 Kings 4, verses 42 through 44. What do I love about actually reading that story? Well, because aside from the obvious details that offer parallels with Matthew 14, it also offers a parallel for Jesus' response to his disciples, right? Because if you read through Matthew 14, and, and we haven't dug into the gospel really in specifics at all yet, so maybe we should do that, Um First of all, let, let's do a little bit of backup. At Matthew thir- or 14, 13, so verse 13, the first verse of our gospel, it says, when Jesus heard this, and your translation that we read at Mass might offer a little bit more explanation, what Jesus hears about is the death of John the Baptist, okay? So when Jesus heard this, heard about the, the death of John the Baptist, He withdrew in a boat to a deserted place by himself. This is becoming common practice for our Lord. 
He's being uh, followed by so many people. He's being pressed upon by such great crowds that in many ways, the only way for him to have some time to himself is to literally get into a boat and have the disciples sail him out to the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And we even get the vibe at some points that uh, people may have tried to pursue him in boats. Certainly they pursued him on foot if they ever heard rumors of where he was going. And this is exactly what happens when the crowds heard it, the gospel says, they followed him on foot from the towns. So they must've gotten wind of where he was going and they go ahead of him. So that when Jesus comes ashore, he sees this great crowd. The gospel tells us he has compassion for them and he cures their sick. And he must do this for quite some time because we get this idea of the passing of time. So we're told at verse 14, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a deserted place and the hour is now late. Send the crowds away so that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. So the disciples are aware that it's approaching dinner time. There's no McDonald's nearby, no Pizza Hut, no Jimmy John's, no grocery store. The people are going to get hungry. So he, Jesus should dismiss the crowds. Jesus, Jesus should try to kind of, because here, here's what I'm thinking here. Jesus is going to have to kind of try to not quite coerce them, but certainly convince them that like, I know there might be more of you that want healing or want to be around me, but really you're going to get hangry soon and you're going to want food. So, you know, come back tomorrow and, uh, and we'll take this up again. But in the meantime, go home, get some food, get some rest. What does Jesus say? They need not go away. You give them something to eat. It's jarring. It's pretty jarring. And and I don't think Jesus necessarily... Um, I think he may, be, he may have been jarring on purpose a little bit, is what I'm trying to say. Because I think one of the things that uh, this reply from Jesus would have made the disciples deeply and immediately aware of is their poverty, right? Jesus says, you give them something to eat. And they're like, oh, we don't have anything to give them. But Jesus has something to give them, right? I mean, he's been giving them something this time. It hasn't been food, but it's been his very presence and his uh, his miracles of healing. But there's a sense in which as well, Jesus's reply immediately brings us back to 2 Kings 4. This is a deserted place, the disciples say, and the hour is now late. Send the crowds away so that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Jesus said to them, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. A man came bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley. And Elisha said, give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, how am I to set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. 
So he set it before them, the servants, or the servant, and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord, right? So Jesus here fulfills not only Moses and the manna, but also this this story of Elijah providing for the needs of the widow of Zarephath, as well as Elisha, who feeds a hundred men with the 20 loaves uh, through his servant. And Jesus will do even more than that, right? Precisely in that he feeds 5,000, so even more men than Elisha fed, with five loaves and two fish, with even less than Elisha had. So not only is Jesus the new Moses, not only is Jesus the new Elijah, Jesus is also the new Elisha. But if our gospel reading looks back to the Old Testament, it also looks forward. And we already touched on this in in talking uh, in our introduction uh, broadly about the feeding of the 5,000. But what it looks forward to is the Eucharist, right? And Matthew uh, purposely shows us the links between the feeding of the 5,000 and the Last Supper. So for example, um, the feeding of the 5,000 as well as the Last Supper, we're told both occur in the evening. They both occur while people are reclining. So Jesus um, has the uh, crowds. We're told he has them sit down. And if you jump forward to Matthew 26, verse 20, and read at least the RSV, it also will say that the disciples uh, sat down. But if you translated the Greek more literally, it would be to recline at table. So both the feeding of the 5,000 as well as the Last Supper occur in the evening Uh, The recipients of Jesus' gifts of food are reclining when they receive them. And the same sequence of actions takes place both in the feeding of the 5,000 as well as at the Last Supper. And those sequence of actions are fourfold. Jesus takes, blesses, breaks, and gives. He does this at the feeding of the 5,000 here in Matthew 14, as well as at the Last Supper at Matthew 26. He takes, blesses, breaks, and gives. And interestingly enough, who does he give to? The answer is obvious in Matthew 26. He gives to the disciples. But in the same way here at Matthew 14 in the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus gives not to the crowd of the 5,000. He gives to the 12. And the 12 then distribute. This also has Old Testament sort of precedence, if you will. Um, We can look to uh, 1 Kings 4, where uh, we get a description of some of the details of how Solomon ran his kingdom. And at 1 Kings 4, verse 7, we read that Solomon had 12 officers over all Israel, 
who provided food for the king and his household. Solomon had 12 officers over all Israel who provided food for the king and his household. What does Jesus do as the new son of David? Establishing a new kingdom, he places over his kingdom 12 officers whose main task is to provide food for his household. And what is this food? This is the food of the Eucharist prefigured here in the feeding of the 5,000 at Matthew chapter 14. It's also fascinating too, because if you pay attention at mass, especially at mass where there is uh, where there are priests concelebrating, so where there's more than one priest, which means one priest is the main celebrant, right? So during the Eucharistic prayer, there's going to be one priest uh, at the altar during the words of institution, right? He's the main celebrant, but you'll notice that the concelebrants, the other priests who are there, also participate in the Eucharistic prayer. And if you pay close attention, when it comes to the giving of communion, and I'd encourage you to do this, it's really fascinating to watch. If it's done liturgically correctly, when it comes to the giving of the communion, a priest will never give communion to another priest. If you pay attention, you'll notice that what he does is just offer communion to him. So, so what do I mean by that? I'm, I know I'm being kind of vague. Whereas the lay person, so for most of us listening, we are lay people, the priest will actually hand us the Eucharist, right? But what most often takes place um, during a concelebration with other priests present, the main celebrant will either step aside from the altar and allow the priest to come forward and give himself communion, or he will merely offer the paten containing the, the precious body to the con-celebrating priest, and he himself will take. And, and what is the idea here? That just as both the Eucharist at the Last Supper and the loaves and fish here at Matthew 14 and the feeding of the 5,000 were entrusted to the disciples who then, and of course at the Last Supper, this, this wasn't immediate, but who then later distribute that, so also the Eucharist here and now at our, at our regular celebration of, you know, weekly and Sunday Mass, the Eucharist is entrusted to the priests. Only the priests, in a way, can take for themselves, and then they are the ones who then turn around and go and, and offer and feed, and so even in this very small liturgical gesture and even this very subtle difference in how communion is handled for the priest versus the layperson, we see this, this order 
playing itself out. This order here that we read about in 1 Kings 4-7 with the 12 officers over Israel tasked with the feeding of the household and the 12 disciples here at Matthew 14 tasked with the feeding of the crowd and then the 12 also at Matthew 26 tasked, not immediately, but eventually tasked with the feeding of the kingdom of God through the Eucharist. And so this new food is entrusted to the 12, and that is in part the significance of the 12 baskets that are left over. There's this idea that this food is, not only is it super abundant, but it's also for the future. And there's enough for the future for each of the 12 men who are entrusted in the future with continuing to feed the household of the kingdom of God. There's also a sense in which the 12 baskets uh, left over, the 12 baskets of leftovers is deeply important because there's an idea that's sometimes put forth in exploring the feeding of the 5,000 that what Jesus um, pulled off here was not miraculous, but rather what Jesus pulled off here was a convincing kind of, if you will, the crowds to share their food. There's a Bible scholar in the 1900s that put forth this idea that what Jesus did was just inspire generosity in the crowds and food that they were kind of hiding and keeping to themselves. He inspired them to pull out and share with others. Well, 12 baskets full of leftovers when you've just in simply inspired the people to share? I don't think so. And so the 12 baskets of leftovers are deeply important from an apologetic level and kind of logically affirming the, the idea that we have something supernatural taking place here because if you just had people sharing their food and not everyone had food and what have you, you wouldn't have 12 baskets full left over. And so just like, um, you know, the burial cloths at Jesus's tomb affirm the supernatural nature of what took place. In other words, affirm the resurrection because what grave robber strips a corpse naked before stealing it? So just as those those clothes kind of affirm the supernatural, so also the 12 baskets of leftovers affirm the supernatural nature of what takes place at Matthew chapter 14 in the feeding of the 5,000. Let's talk about uh, other Old Testament um, kind of fulfillments in our our readings today. So we touched on uh, how much Matthew 14 fulfills Old Testament um, stories as well as expectations, but let's move back to our first reading, which comes from the prophet Isaiah, and see if this touches on more Old Testament uh, connections for us. So Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 through 3. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you that have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. 
Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen so that you may live. I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Isaiah 55 verses 1 through 3. Even just reading this section of Isaiah, we can see how Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 fulfills this. Come. If you thirst, come. Even if you have no money, come. Buy and eat. Buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why? Because the Lord satisfies. And then we get this idea in verse two that the Lord satisfies not just our physical needs or not just with physical food. Because the prophet says, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? In other words, this is this kind of reminder from God through the prophet Isaiah that that for which we labor doesn't truly satisfy us because it only satisfies us for a time. But the satisfaction that our Lord wants to bring us is an eternal satisfaction. And this is affirmed at the end of our reading here, at the end of verse three, when God through the prophet Isaiah says, I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David, right? What is what does this refer to? Well, there's a, there's an element of ambiguity, but for one, it appears that Isaiah is connecting the everlasting covenant with David. And indeed, if you read about the covenant made with David at 2 Samuel 7, it's intended to be everlasting, right? The promises of the covenant at 2 Samuel 7, which God made with David, are promises that Uh, David will rule over an everlasting kingdom, that his dynasty will have no end. So not only will his kingdom have no end, but his kingdom will continue to be ruled over by his descendants. His dynasty will have no end. It's fascinating too, because at Acts chapter 13, verse 34 St. Paul, in one of his sermons, alludes to this last kind of section of Isaiah 55.3, I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. And he touches on this. He uses this, Isaiah 55.3, to argue that Jesus, as him who is raised from the dead, is most fit to rule an everlasting kingdom. So Paul at Acts 13 verse 34 alludes to Isaiah 55, 3 in our first reading here today in order to argue that Jesus Christ as him who is raised from the dead is most fitting to rule an everlasting kingdom. Well, we know that Christ is most fit to rule the everlasting kingdom of David in precisely because he is a descendant of David, right? He has the pedigree of David. But the argument that Paul is making is profound because Paul seems to be saying that 
look, God intended for David's dynasty and kingdom to be unending. How can he do this when we know that at some point the world as we know it is going to come to an end? Well, the precisely the way that God will keep his covenant with David is to put a Davidic king on the throne who is everlasting. And who is that but Christ himself who is not conquered by death? Who has had a victory over death, who has been raised from the dead and is in a way now everlasting even in the flesh. Even in his human flesh, Christ now is everlasting. And so in his resurrection, Jesus is most fit to rule the everlasting Davidic kingdom and to fulfill the everlasting covenant made at 2 Samuel 7. But as uh, Dr. Brant Petrie points out in his commentary on our readings this Sunday, this phrase everlasting covenant, although it indeed sparks to mind or brings to mind 2 Samuel 7, especially because the prophet Isaiah immediately brings up David, for an astute reader and certainly for a Jew, an ancient Jew reading Isaiah 55, this idea of an everlasting covenant would have also brought up uh, this idea of the bread of the presence. Now, we've touched on this, I believe, before in our podcast, and if you've ever read Dr. Petrie's brilliant book, Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist, you may be familiar with this idea. But for those of you who are not, the bread of the presence is one of the three sacred objects that was uh, placed in the tabernacle, the ancient tabernacle, so that which... uh, kind of predated the temple. The tabernacle was like the moving temple, right? The bread of the presence was one of the three sacred objects which the tabernacle was built to house. The most famous of those three sacred objects is the Ark of the Covenant, okay? Most of us are familiar with that. But what many people don't know is that there were two other sacred objects which were to be kept in the tabernacle. And then when the temple was built, the permanent tabernacle built by Solomon, those three objects were also in the temple. And so we have the Ark of the Covenant. The second object is the menorah, which you might be familiar with from, you know, Jewish practices of or celebrations of Hanukkah. And the third and least familiar object, sacred object, kept in the uh, initially in the tabernacle and then in the temple was this quote-unquote bread of the presence. Uh, in Hebrew, it's lechem uh, ha-panim, bread of the presence, literally translated bread of the face. And we can see even in its very name an allusion to uh its purpose in this bread somehow resides God's presence. And at Leviticus 24, uh, Leviticus being uh, the book for the Levites, which primarily gives uh, liturgical norms. So at Leviticus 24, we get the description of the bread of the presence. And at verse 8 of Leviticus 24, we read, Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall set it in order, the bread of the presence, 
before the Lord continually on behalf of the people of Israel as a covenant forever. If you translate the Hebrew literally, it's an everlasting covenant. I believe it's uh, Barith Olam. It's the same idea as read about here in Isaiah 55, 3. And so when we read here in Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 3, about this banquet, which many scholars believe Isaiah 55 is a building off of Isaiah 25, which describes, prophesies another Messianic banquet. If Isaiah 55 is describing for us a banquet and a banquet that satisfies a banquet that satisfies that is free and a banquet that satisfies that is free that is not just temporal, then this banquet is also tied to an everlasting covenant, which implicitly then, with the Old Testament context, the broader Old Testament of context of Isaiah 55, which includes Leviticus 24, this banquet that is free, this banquet that satisfies, this banquet that is not just temporal, but even eternal, is tied to the bread of the presence. And if in the old age, if in the old covenant, God made his presence felt in this sacred bread, which was offered before the Lord every Sabbath day as an everlasting covenant, how much more would God in this new everlasting covenant institute a new bread, which would indeed contain God's presence and be itself a reminder of the Barith Olam, the everlasting covenant. We can go back to Luke 22 in the institution of the Eucharist as uh, given forth in the gospel of Luke. And we find that here in the institution narrative, Jesus links this new covenant, which is the Eucharist, with in Greek, a kaina diatheke, which means a new covenant. Jesus says at Luke 22, 20, this is the kaina diatheke in my blood. This is the new covenant in my blood. And as Dr. Petrie points out, interestingly enough, the lechem ha-panim, the bread of the presence, was not just a sacrifice of bread, but Leviticus 24 also talks about flagons of wine. And so it was a sacrifice of both bread and wine. And so here in Isaiah 55, and the church intentionally choosing Isaiah 55 as our first reading today to complement Matthew 14 shows us 
that Jesus in the feeding of the 5,000 not only fulfills Moses in the manna, not only fulfills Elijah and the feeding of the widow at Zarephath, not only fulfills Elisha and the feeding of the 100 men with the 20 loaves of barley, but he also fulfills 2 Samuel 7. He also fulfills um, the, the, the division of the household of Solomon at 1 Kings 4, 7, placing in charge of Israel with the task of feeding his household 12 officers. But he also fulfills Leviticus 24 and the bread of the presence. And indeed, he institutes and fulfills the broader prophecy, both in Isaiah 55 here in our first reading and previously in Isaiah 25, this prophecy of a new messianic banquet. So that just as Moses and the elders on Mount Sinai, when they initially come out of Exodus, eat a banquet with God on Mount Sinai and we're told, behold God, so also we who have been brought out through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross in this new exodus are able also to eat and behold God. And how do we do this? In the Eucharist, which Jesus gives us every single day if we so desire. We so often just relegate the Eucharist to Sundays, but my friends, The Eucharist is offered around the clock so that as St. Jose Maria Escriva said, he who has been waiting in the tabernacle for you for 2,000 years can come to you every single day and feed you and satisfy you, not with the bread that is temporal and that leads to hunger in just a few hours, but with a bread that will feed you for eternity. Praise you, Jesus, for giving yourself to us so selflessly in the Eucharist. And we pray, Lord, that you would inflame us with love and devotion for your precious body and blood held captive in the tabernacle. How are you held captive there, Lord? Are you held captive there? by lock and key? No, because you are omnipotent. Lord, you are held captive in the tabernacle for love of me. May I love you equally and all the same for now and eternity.